it's Tuesday and we are back after the long weekend. We'll be talking about Hurricane Durian and then Zach is sitting down with author Salman Rushdie. We'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Bergen. She just got to work, and you are watching it. <laughs> now, I just decided to join you on this set as opposed to the it's other set. a long, set. long walk. A long walk. Uh, some the of you may know walk. this walk, um, but Alex just got very familiar with that walk. Yeah. Well, we are back from this long we weekend. Are. Yes, that almost tried to kill me. That almost tried to kill you. <laughs> See, that was not a good joke about that, because I did get stuck at the airport due to a security issue that happened at Newark, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> But you were away this weekend. Yes. It looks like you had an amazing time. I did. I was in New Orleans. It was Southern Decadence. Uh, and I was flown down by the Ace Hotel to do a live version of my podcast, The Tin uh, on Luminary. Which plug, was not it. A plug. plug it. Plug it. But uh, I was there with a bunch of other <laughs> queer creators. And, um, and yeah, that camera was very close. That was a fun space. But that was me, people like Fran Torado, who's been on the show before, um, and a few other folks. It was really fun. It was yeah. my first time in New Orleans, which is your favorite city? I, it's definitely one of them. Okay. Um, tell me some of the highlights. Like, I want to know where you went. About <laughs> you got to give me I really want to know. There was no highlights. What are you talking about? I was a Christian. (laughs) I did nothing. As as you always know. But no, I'm always a good Christian woman. But it was a really fun town to like drink in the streets because y'all know I love a cocktail. And girl, when I tell you, you can take a, a cocktail from one bar and walk into the other bar and you don't get in trouble. That was a first in my life. It's I really, tried. it feels, no, I know the feeling. It's like when you walk out and you're holding your drink in the street and you feel like you're doing something yeah. illicit and like, you're like, I don't want to get a ticket for being yeah. out here drinking, but actually it's completely allowed. Yes, and the bartenders at the, the next bar are just like, yeah, just order another drink. It's fine. So if the whole world was like that, I would maybe lose my job. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what did you do this weekend? I feel like you had a different vibe. I did have a different me. vibe. Yes, well, I mean, I did do some drinking outdoors. Okay, um, I was in the cool. Catskills at a friend's house. It was so much fun. Um, we like just kind of sat out by a fire pit. We built there. You can see I'm like wandering around oh, yes. the woods with my glass of rose. And I was like, listen. <laughs> Looking glamour. I know. Like, I was like, you can take me out of the city, but I'm still going to be out here like with oh this rose and a full face of makeup. Pool. I know. I know. <laughs> I assure you, I was the only person who was like insistent on wearing lipstick in the woods and being all done up. Everybody like else was like, strong. we're hiking. <laughs> what are you doing? So yeah, but it was so good. Like it felt so nice to get mm-hmm. out of the city. Um, we also made a makeshift slip and slide, which oh. I am. I feel I've uh, crossed the age threshold. A makeshift in slip which and slide. it is appropriate to slip and slide, but hmm. we how'd you it, make so. it slip and slide? Um, I mean, you like put a hose down. It's a whole thing. Okay, I'll, d- I'll direct you to my Insta story. Perfect, you can find yes. out. But it was really fun. Burn. Yeah, but alas, we are back here at work to talk about getting, the news. Getting into this news cycle. Yes, but so, we have something to begin with that I think is perfect for us today. It really to is. Well, White House Deputy Press Secretary Judd Deere tweeted. For all of you who still think our vice president is anti-gay, I point you to his in the second lady schedule tomorrow where they will join Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and his partner, Dr. Matthew Barrett, for lunch in Ireland. To which Michelangelo Signorelli replied, wow, he agreed to meet with a head of state? Bar's pretty low and he still supports discrimination. Tell me he supports marriage equality, then we'll talk. Um, so having lunch with gay people mm-hmm. does not make one any less homophobic, especially when they've spent the majority of their career supporting anti-LGBTQ policies. Yes, because if that worked, then you all would be at brunch tomorrow. We'd be taking you out to eat, and we'd be solving homophobia and structural racism all at the same lunch table. So yes. no, this is not true. You know, just because the Trump administration is like, oh, we're going to go let Mike Pence and take, uh, let him take uh, his wife, Karen, uh, to meet some gays at their house and have a cordial dinner doesn't make this any less bad. The fact that that man has led to, you know, trying to block marriage equality from happening. His state, due to his own policies, created one of the worst HIV epidemics in the the history of this country. Yeah. He's done so many things that has hurt queer people and just laughs about it each time, like literally laughs about it. So he is the devil towards queer people. This lunch will not save you from that. And I think what a lot of people were reacting to is to see the deputy press secretary be like, look, he's not homophobic. It's like, <laughs> what? Do, do you really think that we cannot connect the dots yes. and that we're just going to be like, Oh, well, okay then. It's no He's having a lunch with the gays. Yes. I guess we're settled. Yeah. Well, the reason why people thought this was true is because the a deputy press secretary is an openly gay man. He is the openly gay kid in the White House. And you know what? He Just because he's gay doesn't mean he's speaking for all of us. And that's my thoughts on that one, sis. Sorry. <laughs> all right. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What do you think of Mike Pence's lunch with the T-Shock and his partner? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Garbage, garbage, garbage. All right, switching gears this morning. Here's a tweet from Avery Tomasco. 
This is a 72-hour satellite loop of Dorian. In the final 24 hours of this loop, Dorian has not moved. That is 24-plus hours of absolute devastation for the northwestern Bahamas. Hard to imagine what has transpired there. Here's a tweet from Dr. Marshall Shepard. It's still not moving. Epic tragedy for Grand Bahama. My heart goes out to everyone there and their families. I feel nausea over this, and I only get that feeling with a few storms. Very taxing on me from afar, knowing friends that have family there. Dr. Shepard is a professor of geography and atmospheric sciences at the University of Georgia and a former NASA research meteorologist. He's here to talk about the latest on Dorian. Good morning. Good morning. So what's happening with the hurricane right now? Has it started to move? If you want to call it that, I'm the latest information that I've seen suggests that it is starting to inch to the northwest at roughly one mile per hour. It, it had been literally stationary, and amazingly, it has been there for hours, almost a day or so. So as you just noted, it, uh, that, that area has taken a pounding, and it's going to be an epic tragedy once we're able to really get in there and see the damage. But we are expecting it to move northwest westward and then eventually make a turn and parallel the coastline of Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Mm. And Doctor, why did it stick on the Bahamas? It seems very peculiar to see such a large storm just sit over such a small island. It, it is. And I will have to say that our models did sniff out that this storm would stall. But I think for all of us to see it stall for so long, perhaps, is a bit of a shock. Essentially, think about this hurricane as a big spinning child's top within a larger river of air, if you will, and it lost its steering currents. The steering currents that was pushing it toward the west essentially weakened. Uh, we knew that was going to happen, and we expect a, a, a low-pressure system to come in now out of the southeastern United States and hopefully usher this thing and move it along and, and get it out of here and parallel the coast without making any landfall. So once it does hit uh, the coast of the U.S., um, what can we expect to happen there? Well, I don't think it is going to hit the coast okay. of the U.S. We certainly, that's what the model suggests. It's going to parallel the coast of the United States from Florida, Georgia, and South and North Carolina. Now, there is a chance that it could make landfall somewhat in the Carolina region, maybe around Friday. But the latest models don't bring it in as landfall. However, the coastal regions of all of those states will feel impact, storm surge, rainfall, perhaps even a stray tornado. So everybody from northern, central and northern Florida coast all the way up to Virginia, really, should keep an eye on the storm. We saw something very similar with Hurricane Matthew in 20, uh, several years ago. Mm. So, you know, we talk a lot lately about these 100-year storms that are happening more and more frequently because of climate change. Is Dorian an example of, you know, increasing violent storms due to changing pressure around? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's irresponsible to kind of say that at this point, although I think there is evidence that uh, uh, climate change certainly will have an impact on our storms going forward. What I will say, I, I don't like to talk about the climate change thing in the midst of the tragedy. Mm. I usually focus on that first. But I will say that we are seeing more storms stall like this. We saw it with Hurricane Harvey. We saw it with Hurricane Florence. And there is scientific literature and research that suggests that as our climate changes, we will see more of these stalling type storms. But I like to have those conversations after the fact. Right now, I'm more concerned with the immediate uh, uh, well-being of citizens in the path of the storm. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're concerned with the immediate well-being of citizens in the path of the storm. Um, it seems like some of these areas, um, you know, are still recovering from previous storms. Um, will that make uh, the recovery just that much more challenging? Yeah, that, that's a great point, because this area, the, the, the Caribbean, as we know it, from Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, many of these places have just experienced a, a barrage of hurricanes over the last several years. Uh, this area is accustomed to hurricanes, so that's not anything new to them. But I do worry about sort of the frequency and intensity of some of the storms over the last several years, because uh, I fear with Grand Bahama, we won't recognize it uh, this weekend when we're able to really get in there and see this after the after the storm has moved on. I'm, the, some of the imagery already coming out is just mind-blowing. And so they'll rebuild. They're a resilient people. But I just want them to know, um, those of us that are scientists that study this, we're, we're looking at the meteorology, but I'm concerned about them as a human being, too. Mm. And speaking of them and their futures and what's going to happen next, what can we expect with more hurricanes coming down the line? Because we are still in the middle of a hurricane season. I mean, we should be expecting yeah. more, correct? 
Absolutely. Yeah, we are actually just ramping up to the peak of the Atlantic hurricane season. Typically, sort of second week of September is the statistical or the climatological peak. And if you look at what's going on in the tropics right now, uh, we're not just monitoring Hurricane Dorian. There are several tropical systems in the Atlantic that we're monitoring uh, right now. So uh, this is the time of year where we expect activity to pick up, and it certainly is. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shepard. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. Uh, I think that's such a good point that he makes that, you know, we are still just in the midst of a hurricane season and such devastation uh, is terrible for right now, but it also, there's going to be more to come. So yep. we'll be watching that very closely on mm-hmm. our end. All right, well, switching gears a bit this morning, here's a tweet from the Associated Press. Britain's parliament is seeking legislation to block a no-deal Brexit on October 31st. If it passes, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Downing Street office says he'll call for an early election. Here's a tweet from Alberto Nardelli. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson told the nation yesterday, as we come to the Brexit deadline, I am encouraged by the progress we are making. I asked an EU official whether it was true that there has been progress in talks. Their response, no, there hasn't. Ooh. Joining us now to discuss the latest is senior political correspondent for BuzzFeed UK, Emily Ashton. Good afternoon. Hi. All right. So today, Parliament returns in hopes of stopping a no-deal Brexit. So first, what is that and why is the new prime minister so bent on allowing it to happen? Um, Yeah, so what happens on October the 31st is that Britain is automatically due to leave the EU. And that's that's what's going to happen. And Boris Johnson, this new prime minister, he's only been there a couple of months, but this is what he's promised to deliver. Um, So he, he really, really wants Britain to leave on October the 31st. He wants a deal, but actually he's prepared to leave without a deal. And that's what's caused so much consternation, um, that Britain could leave the EU without a deal on October the 31st. And there are lots of people with worries about that, about availability of medication post uh, October the 31st, about food, um, about price rises in food, problems with traveling to Europe, effects on businesses with the um, price on imports um, on goods, for example. Um, And these things may not come to pass, but these are real fears that people have. And that is the worry about a no-deal Brexit. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of the political dynamic right now? Uh, What is the Rebel Alliance? Uh, What does today, what has today been like for them? Yeah, the Rebel Alliance is this great term that's been coined by the British newspapers here. Um, It's basically a collection, a group of cross-party MPs, but very quite quite powerful MPs. So you've got people like Philip Hammond, they're really leading the charge. Philip Hammond was Chancellor just a couple of months ago um, under Theresa May. He is now Chief Rebel, um, but he's actually joined forces with people like Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, um, and Joe Swinson, the Lib Dem leader. So you've got all these um, people that were never, you were never grouped together before, who have suddenly come together um, to create this, this um this way of moving forward and trying to block a no-deal Brexit. So this afternoon, um, they are actually going for an, uh, this emergency debate, is called in the House of Commons, that the Speaker is going to allow them to amend. I mean, it all gets a bit complicated. I don't want to get too much into the weeds of it. But basically, they push forward a bill um, in one day tomorrow to push the exit date from October the 31st to January 2020 just to avoid that cliff edge. Um, And it's going to be quite a tight vote later. So all eyes on Parliament about nine o'clock our time. Mm. So Prime Minister Johnson has threatened to do a snap election uh, if he doesn't get his way. Or I'm still trying to figure out why this is being brought up. So can you first explain to us, how can someone just call for an election? Because that hasn't happened here ever in the U.S., I don't think. (laughs) Yeah, it's a totally different system. I mean, it shouldn't really happen here. We've got this thing called the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which was set up under the coalition. That's supposed to prevent a prime minister from unilaterally calling an election. But actually, if you have two thirds of MPs that vote for the motion, um, you can actually supersede that legislation. So Boris Johnson could call for an election and he's saying um, through his sources, he hasn't actually said it himself, but we know that Boris Johnson wants to call an election if the rebels win this vote tonight. Um, and that could well happen um, tomorrow. We could see an election motion down on the order paper. But as I say, two thirds of MPs have to vote for that to go through. And what we don't know is whether Jeremy Corbyn wants, we know he wants an election, but we don't know whether he will call, vote for it right now. Because the danger is that if you actually back an election right now, Labour worry that Boris Johnson will actually amend the date on the um, on the election bill 
to put it to, to have to to make sure that um, Brexit goes through without um, that we leave without a deal um, while everybody's fighting an election. So they're worried that it's a big elephant trap, basically. It all, it all gets very complicated about whether there's going to be an election or not. But yes, we, we hear the election war drums now. We're, they are beating. We're ready for it. Uh, it all gets very complicated and it sounds quite <laughs> worrisome. Um, how has the public been reacting? How have financial markets been reacting? Uh, what is the mood around all of this? Yeah, I mean, it is it is complicated, and um, the pound has fallen to its lowest level, I believe, since October 2016. It's not good for financial markets, but all of this is to do with uncertainty. And I suppose Boris Johnson would argue financial markets are going to do this while um, the, the economy is so uncertain about what's going to happen in the future. And he would say, look, what we need to do is leave the EU and get on with it and everything will become more stable. At the moment, people don't want to sell their house. They don't want to buy a new, new house, for example. So we don't know what's going to happen. Um, so it, it is all tied up with uncertainty rather than perhaps the threat of a no-deal Brexit. It, you know, um, the Conservative government would argue, let's get on with Brexit, you know, let's let's just move on and everything will become more stable. But we don't know how stable it will be after a no-deal Brexit, that's the worry. And the reality of him getting a deal through in a couple of weeks um, at the end of October is very, very slim now. Very slim. And it sounds very slim, even from New York City. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today and walking us through something that is incredibly complicated, even for folks on the ground there. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like it's... I... Yeah, <laughs> I, it's, it's really been something, like, we have covered this a couple of times on the show already, and mm-hmm. it just seems like there are so many twists and turns. Yeah. Um, you know, just as we get closer and closer to that mm-hmm. October 31st deadline. I feel like the theme lately in politics is that there are things you can do, but you just shouldn't do, and then everyone's doing the thing you should not do <laughs> over and over and over and over again. So, yeah, we will see. But it does sound Brexit will be happening. Sometime. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll continue to cover that story, of course. And coming up, Zach sits down with author, author Salman Rushdie. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome back. I mean, talk about coming back from vacation and just like getting right oh, into the right. mess of everything. <laughs> you open up your email, you're like, oh shit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Everything's on fire. But today we're talking about funny fire. <laughs> oh God. All right. Well, I'm just going to get right into Please these do. tweets, okay? <laughs> Matt, you tweeted, I don't know what college freshman needs to hear this, but you don't want to be a psych major. You just need therapy. <laughs> It <laughs> just coughs. <laughs> <laughs> Zach felt personally attacked so by attacked that. by this. No, I know. it's true. You don't need to be the psychologist. You just need to see one. I Did you take a class in college that you did for your own self, like, kind of not fulfillment but like so I'm trying to bring this up I took a love and communication class so I could learn how to like know oh. someone's flirting with you Oh, so I can teach y'all something on that but it's called it was called body communication did you actually learn how? oh my god yes the biggest really? tell is someone mirrors you so if you're on a date if you like try it go like this and see if they go like that that's how you know someone likes you I'm gonna try it yeah alright well then fun <laughs> fact college that's what all that money went to mom there you go <laughs> Sarah you tweet it if you're dating a white guy you're single to me the fuck Matt gonna do start a podcast <laughs> Why, yes. Matthew may start a podcast. Matt, I do know Matt's that do one <laughs> As a podcaster, I do know. They're always the producers, too, like the EPs of the podcast. Got it. It's named Matt. Yeah. It's like a, a genre. Yeah, it's Matt's. Very powerful Matt's. Trap Mode, you tweeted, they're like 12. The correct way to refer to anyone that's younger than you. That's and I agree, even if they are, you know, 29. 29. They're like 12. <laughs> So <laughs> you referred to I'm me sorry, up on a word. I'm having like accidental shady moments. <laughs> I'm just under a cloud today for you know? Alex. All right, well, fly Lucy, you tweet it. Yo, I didn't know business class class gives you unlimited drinks. I am drunk on this plane. <laughs> I already had a rap battle with the staff. <laughs> I feel like you fly business class. <laughs> I'm not answering often. this. Has this I'm, ever happened to you? I have. Um, maybe I have gotten into a lot of trouble with an unlimited drinks in a in a in a non economy flight seat. Well, as someone who is perpetually stuck in economy, I don't know what that life you know is what? like, but hopefully one Cloud, me, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Hurricane Alex right now. Oh my God, all right, tune in today. Right. Comes from Megan, just bought ice cream and wine from 7-Eleven, and the cashier is going to say, enjoy your dinner. Bitch! 
I have to say, I actually think that um, ice cream and wine is a perfectly balanced meal. I was realizing all of these sweets I personally relate to in a deep way. You know, I'm very known to get my Halo Top ice cream and wine for dinner. I may have gotten to rap battle on a business class flight. You know, thank you, Mackenzie, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. this. <laughs> thank you for doing this. Mackenzie, our producer, yes. feeling very seen feeling by very seen collection of and attacked. Is and, the, <laughs> yes, and attacked. Well, anyway, coming up, I'm sitting down with award-winning writer Salman Rushdie. But next, we're going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning. Hey, good morning. We seem to always catch you after vacation. So how was your Labor Day weekend? It was great. I celebrated Labor Day by doing absolutely no labor at all. I <laughs> went to a baseball game. I watched the beautiful mess that is midsummer. And now I'm back, ready to go. Ooh, well, you look wet. Rested, Paul. Very rested. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a little sunburned, actually, but that's fine. Uh, well, you know, that happens sometimes. Well, here's a tweet from the New York Times. There have been 283 mass shootings in the U.S. this year, according to a nonprofit that tracks gun violence in America. In August alone, 53 people died in mass shootings. As Congress prepares to return to Washington, the pressure to act is intensifying. So, Paul, there was just another shooting in Odessa, Texas this weekend. With this latest event, what are the chances of Congress taking actual steps on gun control when they come back next week? Well, to answer that, we just need to be able to look into the mind of Donald Trump because it is all going to come down to him. If he decides to go hard on gun control and to really push for something to be passed, then something will get passed. If not, there's just frankly no way that Republicans in the Senate are going to go out on a limb and pass any kind of aggressive gun control measure uh, without the president behind them. So it we've seen it can go back and forth on this issue on whether or not he's going to actually fight for something meaningful. Uh, Last we heard, that is still the plan. White House officials still insist that they are going to have a gun control package that is going to be thorough, but then you also see things floated around like you know, the death, the mandatory death penalty for mass shooters. So, you know, death penalty for people with a death wish already. I mean, these, some of these are not serious ideas. So we'll have to see what the White House and Congress can actually come to. But again, it all comes down to Trump. Yeah, I mean, you seem to be uh, bringing up some ideas that are not exactly realistic. Um, is there a realistic policy uh, that Congress might look into? Or- to me, it comes down to... Yeah, I mean, there, there, so there are a lot of things that obviously Congress could, in theory, look into. Anything from you know an assault rep, weapons ban to, I mean, I mean anything. But but realistically, we've got a couple options on the table that I think are remotely feasible. And uh, two in particular, I would highlight. One is uh, there's a piece of legislation being developed that would it's it's pretty weak, but it's a grant program for states that enact red flag laws. Red flag laws allow uh, law enforcement to preemptively take away someone's guns uh, for under a court order if they are deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. Uh, this would be a impetus. It would be a way to encourage financially states to set up these programs and to help them use them. It's, it, I, I don't want to say it's uh, uh, nothing or that that would not be meaningful in some areas, but I mean, we're talking at sort of the, the very scratching the surface of what could be done. Something a little bit more ambitious would be taking on universal background checks. I mean, we're talking about closing the gun show loophole, uh, closing uh, private sales uh, that are not, that do not undergo background checks. I mean, there are uh, a huge amount of gun sales, something like one in five in this country that do not undergo background checks. And that would be something that maybe, maybe, maybe uh, you could get through if, again, if the president uh, decided this was going to be his legacy. Mm. Well, speaking of presidents, you know, Beto O'Rourke is running for president and he is from the state of Texas. Um, how is he responding to the latest <clears throat> round of mass shootings in his home state? It's been interesting because it feels like you know, the story of Beto's campaign became that he was, you know, he, he had this big launch and it was this sort of sexy new young candidate. And then it all just kind of got snuffed out when people uh, looked closer at him and decided this guy doesn't really have any ideas and why are you even running? And he's really uh, revamped this and in part has made gun control uh, a big push, a big central push of his campaign. And we've actually seen him, you know, not just double down, but uh, going farther than most Democratic candidates. I mean, Democrats are for the most part on the same uh, page with gun control. Uh, you know, they, they want background checks. They want assault weapons ban. 
uh, he's going further and saying mandatory buyback program. If you have an AR-15, uh, we are going to force you to to give it back to the government. We will buy it from you, but we're going to clean these up. We're going to get these out of the country. Now, how feasible or not that is, how realistic or not that is, the point is that this is, this is someone who is going into the an area that Democrats are traditionally afraid to go to because the whole gun grabber uh, titled, you know, this, the, the, the fear of just having uh, gun owners uh, revolt against the party. Uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke is saying, no, I'm not going to be afraid of going there and I'm going to take, take this mantle. So it's been interesting to see him really revive his campaign and seeing people talking about him more uh, in the past, you know, few weeks as he just takes his head on. Hmm. Um, so you mentioned uh, Congress will get back shortly. What else is on the table for them as they return? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think I think maybe one of the, the big questions for me. Sorry, I mean, sorry. Congress is a great body. Um, it, it's one of the big questions for me is: Is Congress going to do anything essentially between now and the twenty twenty election, other than you know pass a spending bill now and again to keep the lights on, and then confirm judges and uh, you know officials to the administration? I, it, that is basically all that has been happening right now. Congress has just been. I don't want to say sitting on its hands because, of course, you know, the House is passing lots of bills and then the, the Republican-controlled Senate is not, not taking them up. So people are doing things, but nothing is getting done. And it is a big question mark about whether or not that's any of that is going to change. And, I mean, if it is, I think if there's one thing that could force their hand, it is, as we've just been talking about, gun control. Maybe things get so bad that Republicans say, we have to pass something. We cannot go into 2020 without having done something. And gun control becomes the signature issue of this fall. Cool, 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 cool. Doing nothing. Great. Well, here's a tweet from Sungmin Kim. Biden tells NPR regarding his gaffes. Details are irrelevant in terms of decision-making. Um, Paul Biden made uh, another gaffe on the campaign trail. What happened this time? So he tried to tell a very touching story about a, a soldier that he... <laughs> I'm actually trying to think not to jumble this myself like, because uh, there were a lot how, of different versions of it that have been told. But where, do, where does one begin? Yeah, <laughs> because I mean the soldier was actually older, but it turns out the real soldier was younger. But anyway, the, the, the gist of the story is that there was a soldier who tried and failed to uh, save a comrade, and uh, Joe Biden uh, went to pin a Medal of Honor, the Medal of Honor changes, depending on the story, uh, on this soldier. And uh, he said, like, I don't want this uh, because I couldn't save him. It's a very touching story. There's a version of that story that is true. The problem is that uh, Joe Biden has completely mangled essentially every detail of when it happened, uh, what the rank of the soldier was. There's multiple different soldiers. He's taken parts of separate stories um, that all that did happen, but not all in the way he's telling it, uh, where it happened, how it happened, what the soldier did. So... Again, there's a ver there is a, there is a, a kernel of truth, and in fact, uh, the Washington Post tracked down uh, uh, one of the soldiers who told a story that was similar, and it was actually very touching. But it is just not at all how Joe Biden is telling the story, and it, whether or not it is exaggeration or he truly cannot remember what happened, uh, we don't know. But what it, we can all we can say is that he's getting everything wrong when he tries to tell this story. So, you know, the story is a really good tool to bring, you know, empathy on the campaign trail. Uh, but with the flubbing mm -hmm. and the messing up of it, I feel like this will have an impact. But is it? You know, we care about it, but are people caring about it outside of media? Well, there's two ways that this can really become a problem for him. And one is if people think you're lying, uh, if you think you're exaggerating, because sometimes in his tellings of this story, uh, it gets more and more harrowing, more and more dramatic in ways that are not accurate. And uh, if you are, if, if he is perceived to be making things up, I mean, that's obviously a real problem. And the other issue is if uh, people look at him and say, this guy's memory is going and he can't actually keep his facts straight on something that happened to him. And that can be a real cause for concern uh, for if you are a Democrat who is voting in the primaries and you start to be concerned about, is this guy getting a bit too old? So, yeah, I mean, it, I know we, we are in kind of a post-truth world um, and at a time where we have a, a president who you know, lies so much that Daniel Dale only gets two hours of sleep a night. It seems a little bit silly to be talking about Joe Biden mixing up a story, but, you know, he is going through a primary right now, and these things uh, are things that people are going to be looking at, and they're going to be saying, is this the guy we want to represent our party? And we have seen Joe Biden fall from being the far and away front runner to being essentially right now in a three-person race, 
Um, and I mean, how much of that is responsible, I cannot answer, of course. But it's certainly, I mean, I think his campaign is worried about this. Mm. Well, we will be following that closely with you, Paul. So thank you so much for joining us today and welcome back to work. <laughs> thank you very much. I'll see you guys on Thursday. <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> All right. Well, up next, I sit down with Salman Rushdie, author of the new novel, Quixote. Stay tuned. I'm so excited to be joined by award-winning writer Salman Rushdie. He's written almost 20 books, and his latest is the novel Keyshot. Hello. How are you today? I'm really good. I am very happy to be here. It's, I'm glad that you, for you, that you are here. It's, it's, when I found out you were coming, I was like, really? The legend is coming to sit down on our couch. On publication day. <laughs> on publication day, which yeah. is so, so exciting. So it's congrats on that. And let's dive right into the newest work. Yeah. Um, so the book is a, a take on the classic Don Quixote. Mm. What made you want to explore this? Well, you know, I wanted to write a road novel. That, mm-hmm. I had that before I knew what, who, who was going to be in it. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, there's, the thing about Cervantes' character is that, on the one hand, he's a fool. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a kind of crazy old fool. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's a kind of sweetness about him and a kind of innocence and hopefulness about him. And I thought, I wanted somebody like that, somebody optimistic and innocent, mm-hmm to make this journey across an America which is sometimes not optimistic, you know. <laughs> 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 you know that, that the contrast between his hopefulness mm-hmm. about, you know, love will find a way, mm-hmm. you know, uh, contrast that with, with the craziness that we find ourselves in. Yeah. You know, that, so that was, that was sort of the starting point. Yeah, in your book, you know, your character is being driven literally mad by reality television, um, which I feel similar sometimes here in America. <laughs> um, but you do not mention Donald Trump, who I would say is the most famous reality television yeah. star. I just, Why was know, that? <laughs> you know, I just didn't want him in my damn book. <laughs> you did? <laughs> <laughs> he takes up too much other oxygen exactly. around you. <laughs> you know, we, we have him in our heads all day anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, and I also thought that these... This, the America that he's driving through, which starts from the Midwest and comes up to New York City, and then they go the other way, all the way across to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. But that America, the divisions in that America are there anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, they were there before Trump. They'd be there after Trump. Yeah. I mean, Trump may be good at racism, but he didn't invent it. Yeah. You know, so, so what I'm saying is I wanted to talk about that, that, that complicated, divided country. Mm-hmm you know, more than any individual. And then was reality TV a really great way to show that? Yeah, because I thought one of the th- weird things about reality TV is that it's not at all real. Yeah. You know, that it, it's, it's actually very manipulated and artificial. That they, they fool around with timelines, they tell people when to have a fight. Um, you know, everything that is presented as if it was real is actually very unreal, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that if you, over a long period of time, as the character does, if you watch television or you, you imbibe culture in which it's very difficult to tell the difference between truth and lies. Mm-hmm. I think it can do something weird to you. Yeah. You know, and it does something weird to him. Yeah. And I think it, it's doing something weird to all of us every day. Yeah. <laughs> the current media moment. Exactly. But even that, you know, how people watching crazy amounts of television can believe they know the people on the other side of the screen. Mm-hmm. You know, so he falls in love with this woman who is a daytime TV host. He's never met her. Yeah. You know, and decides he will be seek to win her heart by becoming worthy of her, mm. you know? And that's his quest. So, mm. so which is a cockeyed quest, because mm. it's sort of impossible, except, as he says, we live in the age of anything can happen. You know, if Trump can be president, anything can happen. Yeah. So, so he sets out on this impossible dream, mm-hmm. you know? And... and uh, You'll have to read the book to find out if he succeeds or fails. <laughs> I mean, and I'm sure people are very much itching to find yeah. that out. And then something else in the book I wanted to bring up is the opioid crisis. You write a lot about that in this story. Yes. Why was that? Well, it started off, it's two things. One is, again, you know, the opioid crisis is actually terrible in the Midwest, I mean, in the, in the kind of so-called red states. You know, it's actually worse there yeah. than in the big cities. And, and so if he's driving through that world, it seemed impossible to ignore that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have a sort of sad personal reason, which is my youngest sister, who's 14 years younger than me, died very young in her mid-40s and it's for a sudden yeah. heart attack. And then afterwards, we discovered the extent of her dependence on these very powerful drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, if something as, as sad as losing a sister happens to you, mm-hmm. it becomes personal. Yeah. You know? And so I wanted to take it on 
also for that reason. And, you know, you bring this up in a really particular moment here in American history. You know, mm. just the other day, there was a major lawsuit um, in the Midwest yes. regarding Johnson & Johnson, uh, where they are being held liable for the crisis. Mm. What are your thoughts on that new era of dealing with Well, crisis? I'm glad to see it, finally. You know, both with Johnson & Johnson and with um, the manufacturers of OxyContin. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a little late, mm -hmm. but, but, but I'm glad it's happening. And uh, what upset me, really, when I was researching it, was not just that there are capitalist crooks. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's, you know... <laughs> that's <an> old tale. <laughs> not so surprising. <laughs> but how easy it was for relatively modest sums of money mm -hmm. to corrupt the medical profession. That, that you're giving doctors money which is not life-changing, mm -hmm. $20,000, $30,000, you know, and they're willing to start prescribing very dangerous drugs, as they say, off-label, eh, for reasons they're not supposed to be prescribed for, mm -hmm. including recreational reasons. Yeah. You know, so, and people are dying. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so the more I dug into it, the more I thought I really have to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And do you think what this new path for you know justice, particularly, mm -hmm. is this a good one to go down? You know, as a person that's experienced this very personally, yeah. do you think holding just a drug company is financially vi uh, it's viable? A, is it's good? a start, but as I say, you've got to go beyond that into the medical profession. Mm -hmm. you know, because the doctors, how, yeah, doctors, everyone yeah, that's people, involved. I mean, how many people were willing to join? Uh, in prescribing these things. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just big pharma manufacturing it, mm -hmm. it's also just your, your local doctor yeah. who, who might be willing to pres prescribe it to you. And then do you think like the work that you're creating through this book when you're talking about opioids yeah. in a very real way, do you think that it helps us kind of imagine a world in which that's possible? Because you get yeah, to see- Yeah, I hope so, I hope so. You know, you never quite know how a book's gonna affect readers, mm -hmm. but you hope they get the point. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, I'm very happy with, so far. I mean, it's, this is publication day, but the book's having a kind of terrific reception and, mm -hmm. and uh, that's always gratifying. I mean, I actually just found out, so I'll tell you, that it's been nominated on the shortlist for the Booker Prize. I read that. I was going to read that. Congratulations. I mean, literally found out about it just now. Really? Yeah. I read, I'd heard that it, we, they informed me earlier. So I was yeah. like, oh, this is a huge news for you. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, you know. It's, it's probably now the biggest prize in the English-speaking world, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, of course, once upon a time I did win it, but it's been a long no. time. So I'm very happy to have it again. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. so and, we'll see. And do you like, uh, do awards still matter to you? You know, you have this huge prolific career and so respected, but do these moments still well, get exciting? Well, why they matter is that, you know, what I care about is the book finding its readers, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and things like this can popularize the book and maybe people who would not think of picking up a book of mine might think, oh, well, maybe I'll give it a try. Mm -hmm. And it's, for that, it's valuable. Okay, that makes, that makes sense. So before I let you go, I have to ask about the impact the book has had on you creating it because you watched a lot of reality TV yeah. to do this. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think you were a fan before. So no. what's life like now that you've become an expert? You know, now I don't have to watch it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's over. <laughs> it's over, yeah. No, my particular addiction is not reality TV. Okay. It's Law & Order SVU. Really? That's my addiction. Really? Yes. Why that of reality? TV? They're equally they're, produced. Well, and there's, and there's so much of it <laughs> that any given evening, if you finish work mm -hmm. and you just want to unwind, it's always on. That that is true. Or you can so, get it streaming or wherever exactly. else, and it goes so on that's, for like that's my years. Was there a reality? Did you watch the Real Housewives at all? I watched some of them. Yes, various various Real Housewives. Do in, you have a favorite housewife? I can't say that I do. Or a city. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, you know, I used to teach at Emory, so mm -hmm. I was pretty interested in Atlanta. Atlanta is the best one, yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I, and the Potomac women were here the other day. So yeah. I'm making, I'll make sure that they get your book soon, too. Okay, great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank it's been you. lovely hearing uh, the background of this book. And I think it's going to be a huge impact to us. Thank you. Real day. pleasure. Thank yes, you. of course. All right. Well, the book is now available wherever books are sold. And more aim to dm is up next. Here's a tweet from Nicki Minaj. Dear all of you beautiful souls, a man who loves you does not, one, humiliate you on social media, two, beat you, three, cheat on you, four, call you out of your name, put you down to lower your self-esteem due to his own insecurities, and five, hide his phone, passwords, whereabouts, etc. The superstar continued by sharing about her own struggles with abuse in dating. I remember being so afraid to speak because I never knew when that person would be in a particular mood and I could maybe say one wrong thing that would get me hit. So the difference you see in me now is that feeling when a woman feels lifted up, safe, appreciated, and unconditionally loved. She continued, when you see a woman in a toxic relationship, rather than laugh and say mean things, try to offer sound advice from your heart and root for her to learn her worth.
We've all been there. I saw my parents fight and argue nonstop and never divorce. So I thought this was normal behavior. Okay, so there were two things that really jumped out at me from Nicki Minaj's tweets, which one was don't be mean or laugh or make light of uh, an individual who's in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, you should understand the gravitas and be empathetic to what they're going through. And then the second one was that she said she had seen her parents Mm -hmm. model these kinds of behaviors and Mm -hmm. stay together. Yes, and what I love what she was bringing up is something we never talk about, and that relationships are complicated, they're dynamic, and that when you don't, we'll never know what someone's truly going through, what they've been through, and Mm -hmm. why they're sitting in it. And I think, you know, as someone that has seen lots of different relationships fall apart, come together, what I've noticed to be so important is that we should talk to folks and not be so accusatory when we see something bad happen. Instead of saying, like, girl, why don't you leave this person? Rather have a conversation. Like, what's keeping you there? What's making you want to work this out? Why does this type of love feel good? Because, you know, what people don't realize is that folks who have experienced lots of violence and abuse, you know, just going through it every day doesn't feel like how you think it is. It becomes very normal. And Mm. you think that's what you deserve. So, you know, they don't see it as bad as you may see it. And it's kind of like a thing that you only see the damage when you're outside of the Mm -hmm. storm, not within it. Well, you talk about that idea of it being really normalized. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times we really replicate a lot of the relationship models that are comfortable to us or normal to us. Um, and so we learn these models. They become really ingrained in us. We might not understand what it looks like to have a more functional, healthy kind of relationship with someone. Mm-hmm. So then we go through that same roller coaster or cycle in our own relationships oh. because it's the only thing we know. It's yes. the only, and it is so hard to mm-hmm. change. I feel like just change in general is really difficult. And then it's even more difficult to make that choice mm-hmm. to um, not continue that pattern mm-hmm. and like extricate yourself from um, that style of a relationship, which might be the only thing that you know. Completely. And I think so many people forget is that like for you to want to change something or to try something new, you need to have what people like Laverne Cox calls a possibility model. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most simply, you need to be able to see yourself in that future space and you need a roadmap to get to that place. And if you've never had a representation in your life or a model of what healthy relationship looks like, or even what like a non-violent, physically violent relationship looks like, you can't even imagine that for your body or for your life. And that's so many people's realities. They think it's normal to be hit in the face, to be demeaned, to have their financial situation, mm-hmm. you know, exploited. And they're like, wait, that's possible to not have this? Like, wait, it doesn't have to be like that? So that's why we have to have grace and empathy for folks because, yeah. you know, we can't just demand someone to think like, oh, you should have like a man that loves you and supports you, does all these things when they've never seen it. It's not real to them. That's a fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, I think, one of the other things you're getting at is also having the language around Mm -hmm. identifying these certain things. Like some people might not know what actually constitutes abuse or emotional abuse or physical abuse. Like I'm just thinking about that list that Nikki initially tweeted out of like, you know, you should uh, know somebody's like whereabouts, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all of these things that are like, people might not realize that that emotional abuse is actually happening because maybe they never learned to label or understand something that way. Um, I have to say, sometimes I feel really lucky because uh, my parents were really communicative and they've been together now for like 40 some years. They've been married for like 35 years or something like that. My dad happens to be um, a relationship, uh, a couple's therapist. So we had a lot of that language around mm-hmm. boundaries. And um, and it's something that, like, you really, you learn. You know, mm-hmm. you're not born with, like, an innate sense of what to call these things oh. or, like, the way to talk about it. Yeah, and I think, like, it's so good. Thank you for sharing that about your parents because I think, for me, my parents have gone through divorces themselves. They divorce each other. They've had other partners. And what I think has been so powerful from that is that I know that I can walk away from something and it does not have to always be that way. You know, if I'm going through a bad situation, I don't need to stay in that situation. I can walk away and build something Something new that is beautiful and great and makes me feel good. And I think we both we both have had to navigate cultures, especially hetero heteronormative cultures that say you meet someone and you should be happy that person loves you and you should stay with them forever. I mean, even the vows in Christianity, which I grew up as a Christian, is that like to death do us part. You know, what's veiled in that little First Corinthians stuff is uh, no matter what this man does to you, you got to stay with them. And that's not the case. You can leave. You can go on. You can have another man. You can have three other men. You can do whatever you want because why? It's your life, and that is oh. Okay. Yeah. But you need people that will let that be okay. And I think that's what Nikki's trying to get at is that people, mm-hmm. you got to support your friends as they're going through hard times and good times and give them uh, a space to mess up and not be perfect. And that may not be a perfect relationship and you got to be there for them. You can't or tell like, them that they're bad for that. Show them love when they're really yes. going through it, when they're having a hard time. Yes. Like, like don't, I hate, don't wag your finger. Yes. Don't face. perpetuate the violence. Yeah. Like they're having, they're being abused by a partner and you want to come in and emotionally abuse them. This is not helping anyone, mm-hmm. dear children. So. Let's take it to the timeline. How do you see your parents' relationship reflected in your own? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm And then call your therapist after. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling mine right now. Yes. Get it. <laughs> We're coming up, Stephanie Chats with author Taylor Jenkins-Reed. Stay tuned. 
Rosiana tweeted, I read Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid this week, and I loved it. The brilliant execution in the oral history format builds the characters beautifully. I found it a really emotional read about creative work, love, partnership, friendship, and self-destruction, among others. Well, Daisy Jones and the Six is BuzzFeed's September Book of the Month, and the author Taylor Jenkins Reid joins me now. Hi, Taylor. Hello. Congrats on being our pick for Book of the Month. Thank you so much. It's very exciting. So this book, I feel like I have seen the cover everywhere. I've heard so much about it. And it follows a band as they rise to fame in the 60s in Los Angeles. And I have to admit, when I started reading the book, I had to stop and Google and make sure that it wasn't a real band. Do you get that a lot? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I do get that a lot. And when... Um, I discovered about maybe like a week after the book came out, I was Googling um, something and I wrote my name and then it was like, is Daisy Jones and the Six a real band? And it turned out there were all of these people that had been Googling whether or not they were real. They're not real, but it does make me feel good that I'm confusing people a little bit. I was, I was very convinced it was real. I don't have a great knowledge of the 70s rock music. So I was like, oh, I just probably heard of that. <laughs> yeah, you just missed them. Yeah, exactly. So how did you draw inspiration for this novel? Was there one band in particular that you envisioned as being Daisy Jones and the Six as you were writing? You know, there were a few. The most obvious one is Fleetwood Mac because they had men and women in the band. It was very dramatic and there were a lot of romantic entanglements and I love them. And I, um, love Stevie Nicks, Lindsay Buckingham so much. So that's, that was definitely a big part of it. Um, but the other part of it was being really inspired by the Laurel Canyon music scene, Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Frank Zappa and Mama Cass and all of those people. And just the community, um, of the LA rock scene in the 60s and 70s. I also got really into Linda Ronstadt and Jackson Brown um, and did a lot of research on the Eagles too. Very cool. And you not only had to write this entire novel, which you wrote in this very interesting oral history format, which I've never read a novel like that before, but you also had to write songs to make it convincing that these were real people who are a real band. What was that like? Do you write songs? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. This is my sixth book. So, so by this point in my career, I do feel pretty confident as a writer, but, but trying to write these songs was, it felt like going back to like the first thing I ever wrote and that vulnerability and that inability to understand like, is this good? Is it bad? I don't know. And having to, to learn that all over again. Um, I really felt like, if this was going to feel like a, an authentic experience for the reader and the whole book is talking about this album that they created together and, and how the lyrics meant so much that you needed to have the lyrics to the album. But I, I thought that and was convinced of that as a reader of someone that would read the book before realizing that meant I had to write them all as the writer of the book. Um, so it was, it was a long process that I, I started and stopped and, and came back to over the course of many, many drafts. Well, your book was not only our BuzzFeed book club books pick, but it was also a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. You know, kind of a, a lesser, a lesser book club, we might say. <laughs> obviously, the BuzzFeed one is bigger. But obviously getting a stamp of approval from Reese is such, such a huge bump for your novel and it brings it to such a larger audience. Can you explain what that was like? Um, that was truly, truly incredible. And I remember the morning when it was announced, I was on my way to my first book event for the book because the book came out, um, you know, at the beginning of the month and Reese announced them at the beginning of months. And so it was like, I was on my way to my first book event and my social media just blew up. And I started to get all these text messages from all these people and emails and people were calling me. And it's been really interesting to see how, um, you know, how engaged people are in the Reese Witherspoon book club, the Hello Sunshine book club. Um, readers really, really 
get involved in what they're reading and they follow up on things and they're curious. And, um, it's, it's been very, very fun and it's been really great to get to meet new readers, um, and hopefully introduce them to, if they like this one, other things that I've written, which has been really great. That sounds like such a fun experience. And you have another really fun experience coming up with the book because it's being turned into a series with Amazon. Congratulations. That is so exciting. I feel like this book almost reads like a script though. Did you picture it as a movie or a series when you were writing it? Not, not particularly. I'm always, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I've worked in Hollywood on and off for about 15 years now. So it's um, something that I'm always cognizant of is, you know, when I'm telling a story, I'm choosing to tell it in a book, but is it, is it a story that could live in, you know, many mediums? Um, But, but it's not something that when I'm writing the book, I'm going, Oh, this needs to be a movie or this should be a TV show. Um, And in fact, because of the way I had chosen to write it, which is that oral history format where it's that interview style Um, at first we weren't sure what an adaptation would look like, but, um, you know, Reese came in and said she knew exactly what she wanted to do and that it was going to be a TV show. And, you know, when Reese Witherspoon tells you that she knows what she's doing, you just hand it over in my opinion. So, um, they are working on that show now and I'm very, very excited to see how it goes. That is so exciting. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for joining me and congrats on all the success. Oh, thank you for having me. Daisy Jones and the Six is available now everywhere books are sold and check out BuzzFeedsBookClub.com to read it along with all of the other members and discuss. It's super fun. Don't go away. More AM to DM is up next. Oh, we made it. We did. We're here. Yes. <laughs> I'm so tired from this weekend, y'all. So, you know, this. You know, I usually love a Tuesday. I, know I did you love the show. Do. But... You know, this wasn't a real Tuesday. This was a fake Monday. Understandable. Thank you'll you'll get your rest tonight. Thank we you. refresh tomorrow. I will come in like a new yeah. gal. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we get into these little tweets? <laughs> Princess Leia tweeted this after my conversation with Salman Rushdie. Trump may be good at racism, but he didn't invent it. Okay, Salman Rushdie with a little word on this Tuesday. I almost started clapping when he said I know. that. <laughs> Facts only. He like, didn't invent it, but he sure is keeping it in business. And that's tea. Yeah. Aww. Well, Jolie tweeted this following our conversation about gun control during Live from the District. I think it's time to acknowledge that our system of checks and balances is putting us in a chokehold. Yeah, nothing getting done. Truly is. Nothing is happening. Horrible, horrible things happening. And then Christian tweeted this. (laughs) Christian tweeted this following our conversation about Brexit. I will never understand Brexit no matter how much people try to explain it to me. I'm too American. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was quite a bit there to unpack, but uh, it seems for everyone involved, uh, it is... Quite confusing. I have worked for British publications, and I still don't understand. <laughs> like, I've literally, that was my job. So yes. it's okay, guys. We're going to get we're, we're all We're all in it together. Well, thank you to our guests, Paul McLeod, Stephanie McNeil, Marshall Shepard, Emily Ashton, Taylor Jenkins-Reed, and Salman Rushdie. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.